Hi, I'm Cheryl, and I'm one of the pastors here at Menlo Church. It is so good to be with you today. Buckle up, because we are about to dive into some concepts that might be radically countercultural. We're in a series that we've entitled Being Human, and we're looking at the life of David and his humanity. We're looking in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Last week, we talked about courage because to be human requires courage. And today, we're gonna consider an aspect of being human that I think, I think we've lost it. I think we've lost this aspect in the noise of social media, in a culture that celebrates disparaging anybody who we disagree with, uh, anyone who has wounded us. And yet the way of Jesus, the one who makes us human, our creator, the one who is the model of humanness, the way of Jesus is the way of love. And Jesus, Jesus calls us to honor others. Even if we find the person dishonorable, unworthy of honor. And of course, we need to unpack this looking at the scripture. And before we do that, I do need to say something because I have a sense, because I think this is what I would be doing during this sermon. It's gonna be tempting for you through this sermon to be wanting to shout out, what about, what about, what about? What about abusive relationships? What about toxic people? What do we do with those relationships? And these are legitimate questions. So next week, uh, one of our former pastors, Scotty Scruggs, used to be here at Menlo. He's gonna be here uh, next week and he's gonna be addressing the whatabouts from my sermon. <laughs> he's gonna be talking about what do we do with toxic people? What do we do if we're in a toxic relationship? So that's a little tease uh, for you to come back next week. Today, we consider honoring the dishonorable as we look at the life of David. So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 26 and let me pray and we'll dive in. Father, it is not intuitive in me for sure. And I imagine it's not intuitive for many of us to honor those who we experience as dishonorable. It is difficult to honor people that we don't feel like are worthy of honor. And yet the way of your son Jesus is the way of love. And so we need your help. And we just confess that to you today. So by your spirit and by your word, would you speak to us? Would your voice be louder than any other voice? Would your power work in us to change us and transform us? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Before we dive into 1 Samuel 26, I do need to give some context to kind of bring us up to speed of where we are from where we left off last week. What's happened to David since he killed Goliath, right? Well, David becomes a victorious warrior. He 
is winning battle after battle for the Israelites and he's becoming incredibly popular. Everyone in Israel loves David. They're singing his praises. They're chanting chants of affirmation. Everyone in Israel loves David, except Saul. (laughs) King Saul does not like David anymore. Saul knows that David has been anointed the rightful king of Israel, but Saul's not yet ready to relinquish his power. Saul's not doing very well with David getting all the accolades and Saul's envy is making him absolutely manic. And so from 1 Samuel 19 up into this chapter, chapter 26, Saul makes multiple attempts to kill David. He makes multiple attempts to have David killed, to be assassinated. And now we come to this place in 1 Samuel 26, And Saul, it says, Saul takes 3,000, 3,000 of his troops to search for David. David gets uh, word of this potential ambush on his life. And in verse seven, we pick it up there and it says this. So David and Abishai, one of his guys, David and Abishai went to the army by night and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Saul has protected himself. He's sleeping in the very middle of all of his soldiers and troops and warriors. He's got his sword right next to his head. So if anyone comes to attack, he's ready. And Abishai says to David, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. It's interesting, and we're gonna see this. It's interesting, different interpretations of the will of God, the hand of God. Abishai is convinced that this is God's providence, that God has delivered their enemy into their hands. He says to David, now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. Basically he's saying, I can get Saul, I can kill Saul Saul in one strike. He's not gonna be able to scream out. No one's gonna be able to, to know that this happened and we can sneak away. But David said to Abishai, don't don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and the jug that are near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and the jug and, uh, that were near his head and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. So God is present. God is providentially put Saul and his soldiers to sleep so that David uh, could step into that space. And then it says, David and Abishai, they cross over to the other side. And from the top of this hill that's far away now, um, David starts to taunt the uh, troops of Saul, his, his army. In verse 17, Saul recognizes David's voice and said, is that your voice, David? David, my son? And David replied, 
Yes, it is my Lord, the King. He uses language of honor, right? Yes, it's me, my Lord, the King. And he added, why is my Lord pursuing his servant? What have I done and what wrong am I guilty of? Verse 21, then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. And David said, here's the king's spear. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. And what's fascinating in this is that in an ancient Near Eastern culture of shame and honor, David chose honor. David refuses to take revenge. David refuses malice upon Saul. Repeatedly, he declares that he will not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. You see, his theology wouldn't let him. Theology is the study of God, and David was a student of God. But he wasn't a student who just memorized facts about God. David had become a student who was a worshiper of God, and there is a difference. To worship God is to live life with God, which means God will delight you, but he also may disturb you because you're doing life with the living God. He's not just a concept. He's not just a fact in your your mind that you can control. He's a God who is alive. And again, sometimes he will delight us and sometimes he will disturb us. You can study God and not surrender yourself to God. You can study God and not surrender your life to God. David was surrendered to God. Saul was God's anointed. In the Old Testament, the anointed ones were those who were supposed to save and serve their people. But Saul, progressively more and more, Saul was not serving his people, he was serving himself. And so you might say he deserved to die, but David would not touch him. All of human life has been touched by God, and David knew this. This is the Imago Dei. In the very beginning, in Genesis chapter one, we see that when God made humans, he made them in the image of God. They bear his mark. They are stamped with the mark of God. And because of that, all human life has sacred dignity. The unhoused, the unborn, the poor, the rich, the marginalized, the immigrant, the imprisoned. We are a church committed to protecting all human life for all their life, because all life deserves dignity. This is wrapped up in the doctrine, the theology of the Imago Dei, the image of God. Whether you like them or not, 
whether we think that a person deserves it or not, all life, all life is sacred to God. The theologian John Calvin wrote this. He wrote, the Lord commands us to do good unto, unto all people without exception. Though the majority are very undeserving when judged according to their own merits, but scripture teaches that we are not to consider what they merited themselves, but to look upon the image of God in all of them, to which we owe all honor and all love. To look upon every human we encounter, those that delight us and those that disturb us, and to look for the image of God on them. David honored Saul by refusing to lay a hand on him, refusing to take revenge. His theology, his life with God would not let him because only God knew what Saul deserved. And David knew that that was not his to determine. It was God's to determine. So what does this mean for us? How does our theology, how does our life with God disrupt our sense of entitlement for revenge, right? I've heard it said, and probably you have too, that wounded people wound people. And I've thought about that. I think I've said that, wounded people wound people. And yet all of us have been wounded in some way, right? So what do we do instead? What do we do to keep ourselves from having our wounds spill out that they would wound other people? And this is gonna sound really trite, but it's really profound. <laughs> what we do is we follow Jesus. The mission of Menlo Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. And let me say this, church, the only way to help people follow Jesus is for us to follow Jesus. <laughs> to honor the dishonorable is to follow in the way of Jesus. To honor the dishonorable is to live out the commands of Jesus who said very clearly that we are to love our enemies, that we are to be merciful just as God the Father has been merciful to us. Love your enemies, Luke chapter six. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. This, these are the words of Jesus. Jesus goes on, he says, and if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because He, the Most High, our God, because He is kind 
to the ungrateful and the wicked. That's the way of Jesus. That's the way of God the Father. He is kind to the ungrateful. He is kind to the wicked. And we are thankful for that personally. Jesus says, love your enemies. And then verse 36, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Be merciful just as God the Father is merciful to you. We are recipients of God's mercy. To be a child of God is to have received and accepted the grace of his mercy, his compassion, his loving kindness. David, you know it when you read his prayers in the Psalms, David knew God's mercy and he refused to withhold that mercy from Saul. And one of the things that we do when we extend mercy, it's not all of mercy, but one of the things that is really important, really crucial, is that we forgive. And the author and former pastor, Tim Keller, he's written a ton on forgiveness. He actually has a book coming out on forgiveness. And he has helped me tremendously to understand forgiveness as a deep work done with God rather than just merely dismissing a wrong. Forgiveness is a deep work that we do with God rather than just dismissing a wrong. Keller says this, he says, forgiveness is always costly. It always costs the one who extends the forgiveness. To forgive, we relinquish our sense of entitlement. This is the cost to us. This is the pain to us often. It's relinquishing our entitlement to punish. Relinquishing our entitlement that, that we feel to punish. And Keller talks about doing this in three ways that are really profound. He says, when we forgive, there's three dimensions of that. First, when we forgive, we refuse to bring the offense up again to the person who hurt us. We refuse to repeat that offense to that person because when we repeat the offense, when we remind them of how they've hurt us, of what they've done, after we've forgiven them, we're overtly or covertly, we're punishing them. You see, the beauty of God's forgiveness is not that he forgets our sins, which is what some people will say, well, God just for, forgets it. Well, it's not like God, God's all knowing, right? It's not like he's like, oh, I didn't even remember. No, here's what's profound about God's forgiveness. What's profound about his forgiveness is he doesn't bring it up again. He doesn't hold it against us. He doesn't hold it over us. He doesn't keep reminding us of that offense, of that sin. So one, we refuse to bring the offense up again to the person who hurt us. And second, we refuse to bring the offense up to other people. This is the one that kind of got me, <laughs> right? Because when I've been offended, 
when I've been wounded, when I've been hurt, I hate to admit it, but one of the first things I want to do is tell somebody about it, right? But Keller suggests that when we bring the offense to other people, we're consciously or unconsciously hoping that they will now punish this person. They'll punish this person by withdrawing their relationship from them. Maybe they'll punish this person by also speaking ill of them and then you don't have to because they'll do it for you. They'll punish this person by thinking ill of them. So we refuse to bring the offense up again to the person who hurt us. We refuse to bring the offense up to other people. And third, we refuse to bring the offense up again to ourselves, hoping that punishment will fall from heaven. I think there's something, and maybe this is just me, but I think there's something sometimes when I, when I ruminate upon a, an offense or a woundedness, um, that, that, I, that I'm thinking that somehow God will have pity on my self-pity and then he will punish them, right? But when we ruminate, when we harbor unforgiveness, because that's really what it is when we keep bringing it up to ourselves, we do, as they say, it's like drinking poison, expecting the other person to die. We want punishment for them, but we end up punishing ourselves in unhelpful ways. To forgive is costly. To forgive is to relinquish our sense of entitlement to punish. To forgive is to let go of the need for the other to be wounded or experience what we experienced. One of the most beautiful things and powerful things about Jesus on the cross is that he did not retaliate. First Peter says this in chapter two, says, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When, when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. This is what David was doing. He was trusting in the justice of God. He wasn't gonna put his hand on God's anointed. He wasn't going to retaliate against Saul. He was gonna entrust Saul to the God who judges justly. And this is exactly what Jesus was doing on the cross. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins. He, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You have returned to the good shepherd. You have returned to Jesus. Jesus on the cross prayed this to his Father, he prayed, forgive them. They know not what they do. 
and Jesus's death, and we need to be clear about this, Jesus's death isn't just a nice expression of love. Jesus's death isn't just a nice expression of love. It is a necessary and costly act of redemption that changes our status with God, that changes our relationship and begins to transform us into the very image of Jesus, restoring our Imago Dei, our image bearing. God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And before we close, let me add one, one more thing. It was something I was thinking about as I was preparing and thinking about what is it in me? What, what makes it so hard to honor the dishonorable? What it makes it so hard for me to not, to not be able to honor those who I find to not be worthy of that. And, and that's so arrogant that I would even put myself in that place. But something that struck me was that I, I hold my reputation so dear. And so often when I've been wounded, so often when I've been offended or someone like Saul coming after David, he's coming after his reputation. They've I felt like my reputation has been marred. But what I see in David, I see David who could have easily demanded his kingship or could have easily walked around and at least pointed out to everyone, well, you know, I'm, Samuel anointed me. I am really the king. I'm just waiting for Saul to get out of the way. You know, I'm the one that's really supposed to be the king. He could have kept putting his reputation, defending his reputation out in front of everyone. He could have kept highlighting all of his victories and, and being the truly anointed one and, and the one that was truly wanting to save and serve Israel. But what we know of David and what I want to become more like is that David entrusted his reputation to God. We see this throughout the Psalms. It shows up in Psalm 3, verse 3, where David prays this. He says, but you, Lord, are a shield around me. You are my glory, the one who has lifted my head. And that language there, some commentators suggest that the idea of the head being lifted is his reputation is being lifted. His head was downcast. He felt like his reputation was marred. And, and in this particular Psalm, he's being chased not by Saul, but by his very son, Absalom. But yet he knows it is God who holds his reputation. It's God who lifts his head. If we could live with the confidence that all we need, not just physically, but emotionally and internally, all we need to believe ourselves loved by God, to find ourselves to be enough 
all we need is in God. I think we would get better at honoring the dishonorable. And so what I wanna do uh, today is, if you'll stand, I want us to pray together the psalm that we have for this week, actually, uh, to meditate upon. And this psalm is Psalm 23. And again, I want us to pray it together out loud. The words will be on the screen, but here it is from our guide. Pray with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen and amen.